0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript,
1: book and print cultures, stamping problems. You are
2: listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating ten years through
1: the community. Created by the world's
2: The Hub is about impact.
3: The Hub is for everyone. Good afternoon and a very warm welcome to People, Place and Power the Grand Jury Records and Local History, a research showcase marking the centenary of the Custom House Fire 1921. My name is Peter Crooks. I'm from the Department of History in Trinity College, Dublin, and I'm the director of the Beyond 2022 research project, Ireland's Virtual Record Treasury. Beyond 2022 is a key legacy project from the Decade of Centenaries, and it's funded by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, sport and media, and I want to take this opportunity to thank the commemorations unit in that department for their support in working uh, towards today's event. Uh, We're working today also in collaboration with the local government archivists and record managers, that's a group representing local archive services up and down the country, and we're very excited about this collaboration. Later this afternoon we will be taking you uh, on a visit virtually to three local archives in Donegal, in Offaly and Wicklow, and a panel session in the second half of this um, uh, afternoon event, will talk to the local service archivists about democratising local history. During the event, we'll be releasing lots of uh, new material, uh, uh, including a new publication, about the grand jury records that we're profiling today and a stunning set of historical maps uh, historical maps that you can explore. So there'll be uh, lots of things to look forward to uh, during the afternoon. There'll also be an opportunity for you to get involved, to ask questions. Uh, you can use the Q&A uh, function in this webinar to log those questions and we'll take uh, um, uh, some uh, time to answer at the end of this session, which will be coming to an end at about 3.30 a short break and then we return after the panel there'll be time for some more questions of our speakers and participants. So in this first hour I'll be delighted to uh, introduce you very shortly to the experts who will tell us more about the grand jury system in Ireland and its records and why we are profiling them on this particularly uh, um, important day in the history of the Custom House. before we uh, go to the first of those speakers, I'm very, very glad to uh, introduce a man who has had a busy morning already. Um, we are speaking today virtually from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute, but also jointly virtually uh, from the Custom House itself. Uh, On this, it's centenary day, so a very special thanks to uh, the Custom House and the Department of Housing, Local Heritage and Government for their participation and support. And representing the Department, I'd like to hand now to Tim Carey, Principal Officer in Communications and Facilities Management from the Department, to talk to us about uh, this centenary moment. Over to you, Tim.
1: Thank you, Peter. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. Um, This is my back room of my house. Alas, it's not the custom house. Unfortunately, it wasn't able to get the connectivity in terms of uh, where where I needed to be. Um, I'm delighted to be here representing the Department on this uh, very special day for the Department. As uh, Peter said, a busy morning. I've just come from the event to mark the centenary of the burning of the custom house, featuring the minister and relatives of those who took part and who were killed in the attack both uh, IRA casualties and civilian casualties. Um, and just, I want to just share screen for a minute, just to show uh, what the event was all about. Um, I'll just click here now. Um, and so, if you if you had any doubts about the level of destruction of the Custom House um, um, that began on this day in 1921, um, the next few photographs should leave you in no doubt as to how uh, badly it, it was damaged. Um, this is from the, the Liffey side. Um, this was the, the original central hall or custom hall or long room of the custom house, um, really the hub of the custom house. Alas, uh, that wasn't rebuilt in the, after the fire but became basically the site of the boiler. Um, and two other images, one on the right is the dome um, and one on the left just a, a, an indication of just the general destruction of, of the building. Um, now, I'll just stop sharing screens there, if that's okay. Um, do, do, do. Stop share. And um, so, you know, I suppose I'm very fortunate to work in a department that takes its history very seriously. Um, largely through its close association with one of what is, obviously, one of the most sig- significant buildings in the country, the Custom House, and its association with one of the most important events of the War of Independence, the burning of the Custom House. But it's also its longstanding association with local government, beginning with the local government boards and continuing to this very day. And it's a department, I suppose, like all departments, they go through their many iterations. I don't know how many it's gone through since the founding of the state but I've been there for four years and I'm in its third iteration, but central local government remains central to the department's identity. And that's not just, you know, paying lip service to the audience that, that we have today. It genuinely is a, a strongly felt um, belief and understanding in the, in the Custom House and in the department that it has always been the home of local government um, and they take that responsibility very seriously. Um, personally, I'm very pleased to uh, uh, as I'm actually partly product of local government, um, I worked in Dunyrie-Rotdown County Council for 15 years um, and uh, as heritage officer for, for most of them. And during that time, I was actually responsible for the management of the archives of the council. Um, so I know what wonderful resources you have, um, and I know some of the stories that are hidden amongst those archives that are there, that are there waiting to be told. And most of the pre- the records in dunyrie Down were pre-1930 and were kept in what was known as the vault, um, which was basically a very large safe. Um, when you went in to conduct research or, or find a document, um, you turned on the light inside, and a red light went on outside in case someone actually decided to lock you in to the vault, um, and the red light showed the passers by that someone was actually stuck in it. Um, but uh, And I can actually still smell the vault from <laughs> uh, for some reason. Um, A seminal event in the history of local government and the history of democracy was the 1898 Local Government Act, which marked a shift from a landlord-dominated system to one with a much wider franchise, now regarded as the second tier of democracy in Ireland. And indeed, for the Irish Parliamentary Party, local government became very much a focus point of activity. The 1899 elections that took place throughout Ireland dramatically saw a shift in the balance of power to nationalist Ireland. Um, at least principally in this jurisdiction. And as local, county, urban and rural districts uh, became the place of influence for nationalism. And I suppose in in keeping with the theme of uh, your day, um, it's where uh, it influences people, place and power in a very real and day-to-day manner. Sinn Féin also saw this connection and saw the winning of control of local councils as a key battleground, and making a firm link between the separatist movement and, again, this sense of local people, place and power. And none more so was that in evidence than in the 1920 elections. Indeed, such was the importance that I think local government had been given by the nationalist movement that the Custom House became a natural target for the IRA. Not only was it one of the most prominent buildings in Ireland, it was the second most important government building after Dublin Castle, and the most important in terms of civil administration. And though it held everything, when you look at the files, the amount of the varying um, roles that people in the Custom House played from the Stamp Office, Inland Revenue, and the predecessor to today's Public Appointments Commission, it was also, I think most importantly, the home of local government. The Custom House was the building where people, place, and power intersected. It's ironic that Dublin's two great Gandan's buildings were destroyed during the revolutionary period, along with the records that they contained. There's a little bit of debate, and I would debate with some of the, the historians about this about the nature of the attack on the Custom House. You know, was it the attack to destroy the building or destroy the records? And from my view, it was, it was probably both. Um, one was you know symbolic this, uh, you know, the destruction of Dublin's finest building, um, one that was known in many parts of the world, and then one that w- still was and still is uh, incredibly photogenic. So the burning of the Custom House made front page news throughout the world. And the other was practical, the destruction of records. For many decades now, both the Custom House and the forecourts have been restored and reopened. But whatever the challenge of reconstructing buildings is, Reconstructing a destroyed archive presents far more difficult challenges, and I believe that the Beyond 22 group can clearly testify to that. However, today, dozens of county archives and libraries have been preserving and restoring surviving records, copies of which uh, were copies of which were destroyed in the fire of 1921 in the Custom House, and so this duplication, while it is not a complete replication of what was destroyed, it goes a long way to filling what was a very important historical gap. And this work is critical to helping to reopen Ireland's history to its own people. And I'm pleased that the department, and including my section, has supported some recent initiatives by local government archivists and records managers, including the marking of the centenary of the 1920 local elections in Ireland with a very fine booklet. Um, and it's interesting, I suppose, this was, that was the last All-Ireland election. Um, but I'm glad that we have representatives on the, the call today from the Armagh Robinson Library, um, Northern Ireland local authorities and the Public Records Office in Northern Ireland, all of whom are united in our desire to record and manage our collective past. On the centenary of a day when nine people lost their lives, an iconic pu- public building was destroyed, and many of the country's records were burned. The Department of Housing and Local Government is very pleased to welcome you, alas, virtually, but hopefully maybe not. Next time we get do this, we won't be virtual, uh, to what is sure to be a forward-linking and constructive collaboration with Beyond 2022 and the virtual Record Treasury of Ireland and the Local Government Archives and Record Management Group. So I hope you all have a very interesting and illuminating afternoon discussing and hearing about people, place and power, grand jury records, and local history.
3: Thank you very much, Tim, uh, for so perfectly setting us up for today's discussion, putting us uh, uh, right in the context of what happened at the Custom House 100 years ago today, and for reflecting on the importance of the local archive services in reconstructing uh, our collective, History And that's, of course, the, exactly the collaboration that we want to foster through uh, the Beyond 2022 project. We're turning now uh, uh, to the deeper history uh, behind the, sort of the precursors to the uh, county councils, the grand jury records that we are, are profiling today. And in this uh, first session, our, our panel of experts will be talking to us about the grand jury system that created those records and the uh, sorts of materials uh, documents, maps, uh, etc., that uh, are preserved uh, in local archives and national collections uh, across Ireland. Uh, our first speaker, Virginia Crossman, is Professor Emerita at Oxford Brooks. Uh, and uh, when we told our colleagues in the local archive services that Virginia was a- able to speak to us today about this, there was some great excitement because in those circles, uh, Virginia is uh, something of a celebrity, as the author of Local Government in 19th Century Ireland, the standard work, which they all seem to have on the tables beside them as we planned this event. And I even heard referred to as the Bible. So who better to introduce us to the grand jury system in 19th century Ireland than Virginia Crossman. Over to you, Virginia.
4: Thank you. I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to talk about the history of the grand jury system in Ireland and its role in local administration. I spent many hours in local archives in the late um, 1980s, early 1990s, uh, looking at the records of grand juries and other local bodies when I was doing my postdoctoral research. And at that time, I remember sort of telling people what I was doing and getting really quite a negative reaction. People didn't really understand why that would be something that was worth doing. This was a period when academic historians were looking really focusing almost exclusively on sort of the national question, national politics and local politics and local administration in particular was thought to be uh, something of much less value. Um, And as a result, the the study of sort of local history and local politics, certainly in academic setting was rather neglected. Um, Now, I think that's not nearly so much the case today, I'm very happy to say. And this, I think, is a really important development because local issues are actually those which affect ordinary people most immediately. And as I hope to show today, they're also the ones that have a wider national impact because they reflect wider national questions. In this paper, I want to provide a brief overview of the development and reputation of the grand jury in Ireland and to consider what this tells us about the nature and perception of local government more generally. The system of local government that developed in Ireland was modelled on that of Britain. The earliest representatives of central authority in the Irish localities, the county sheriff and local magistrates, were adjuncts of the legal system imported to Ireland from England, and the division of Ireland into counties and boroughs also followed an English exemplar. The main divergence between English and Irish administrative practice was in the survival in Ireland of the grand jury, which, as well as hearing legal cases, became the chief organ of Irish county administration. The grand jury was made up of 23 men nominated by the High Sheriff from the leading property owners in the county, excluding peers of the realm. Grand juries had been granted taxing powers in the 17th century to pay for the upkeep of roads and bridges, and these powers had gradually been extended to cover other local matters, such as the building and repair of jails and courthouses, and to pay the salary of a parish watch. Towards the end of the 18th century, the taxing powers of grand juries were extended into the field of social welfare. They could make contributions towards the establishment and upkeep of county infirmaries and workhouses and also local dispensaries. Now these acts were enabling rather than prescriptive, which meant that grand juries could choose whether or not to take advantage of them. But in the early 19th century, an element of compulsion was introduced. In 1817, for example, the first of a series of acts was passed making provision for the erection of district lunatic asylums, the costs being levied on counties through the Grand Jury. In 1822, central government took over responsibility for the policing of Irish counties, with the costs again being levied locally through the Grand Jury. Thus, while the Grand Jury remained the primary organ of local government in the county, its function was becoming as much a taxing as an administrative body. And the nature and level of county cess, or the sort of local tax, was one of the roots of dissatisfaction with the grand jury system. Not alone did the amount of cess levied increase over the first half of the 19th century, rising from about 0.9 million pounds in 1830, and that's a national figure, um, to over 1.3 million in 1840, but the proportion made up of compulsory presentments also increased. Compulsory presentments were amounts that the grand jury was obliged by law to pass, but over which it had no control. So things like the police, um, where the grand jury simply had to pass amounts to fund the police, but had no control over them. In County Down, for example, imperative or compulsory presentments were five times greater in 1830 than they had been in 1802, and they made up over 25% of total presentments. So a quarter of total presentments were compulsory uh, in 1830, compared to around 10% in 1802. Cesspayers and grand jurors criticized the rise in compulsory presentments. Cesspayers te- cess payers disliked paying increased tax, while grand jurors resented having to pass expenditure which they could not control. The issue became somewhat less pressing in later decades as central government took on more of the cost of local services. The full cost of the constabulary was taken onto the consolidated fund in 1846, for example. And in 1875, central government took over a portion of the costs of lunatic asylums. Irish grand juries have generally had a bad press, whether in contemporary literature or historical analysis. The main criticisms made of grand juries were that they were unrepresentative, inefficient, and corrupt. County Cess was levied on the occupier rather than the owner of land, so that grand jurors, who were by definition property owners, were primarily engaged in taxing not themselves, but their tenants. Furthermore, the vast majority of grand jurors were Protestant, whilst the vast majority, of course, of tenants were Catholic. Since the High Sheriff's discretion in the nomination of the Grand Jury was total, and since he was generally a political appointment, it frequently happened that Grand Juries were selected according to the closeness of their relationship to the High Sheriff, rather than their social standing, which was how they were meant to be, they were meant to be put in order um, of property and standing. John Knox, a Sligo landowner, wrote indignantly to the Marquis of Sligo in 1832, that he had been placed 44th on the grand jury panel when his property in the county entitled him to a much higher place. Catholics were excluded from grand juries until 1793. And even after that date, few were selected to serve, even in counties where there were Catholic landowners. Thus, when politics intruded into the grand jury room, it was largely the politics of the Protestant ascendancy. At the spring assizes of 1807, for example, the grand jury of County Tyrone entered a unanimous resolution against Catholic emancipation. It was also widely alleged that grand jurors exploited their position for personal gain. In the early 19th century, anyone wishing to make or repair a road simply drew up a certificate, stating the necessity of the work and the estimated cost. Had this attested by two persons before a justice of the peace, and then submitted it to the grand jury. Multiple presentments could easily be made for the same piece of road, or even non-existent pieces of road. Writing about the appalling state of roads in the far west of Ireland in the 1820s, William Maxwell attributed their neglect to the atrocious system of peculation carried on by grand juries. Roads have been passed as completed when their lines have been but roughly marked out and bridges have been actually paid for, the necessary accounting affidavits having been sworn to in open court when not a stone was ever laid. And since there was no limit to the amount that grand juries could levy, there was no incentive for grand jurors to reject presentments as one Tipperary magistrate noted in 1814, few will object to the jobs of their neighbours, provided that none object to theirs. Speaking in the House of Commons in 1833, Lord Clements, who who represented County Leitrim, stated that the roads in Leitrim were impassable, except in those parts where grand juries resided. Even when grand juries did attempt to give up their business honestly, they found major obstacles in their way. The sheer number of presentments, for example, made careful consider- consideration of each one virtually impossible. In the mid 1820s, the grand jury of County Down approved over 200 presentments in a single day. Criticism of the grand jury system came not just from cesspayers or local people, or from representatives of the Catholic community but also from Protestant landowners themselves, who feared that the blatant abuses evident in grand jury administration undermined the position of Protestant landowners as a local elite and set a bad example. As the Whig landowner Thomas Spring Rice observed, under the grand jury system, public burdens have augmented in a most formidable progression. The public works have deteriorated in a similar ratio the landlord is lowered in general estimation by his acquiescence in a corrupt system, the peasant is impoverished and the community is plundered. Of course, the majority of Irish MPs were drawn from the very class who benefited from the grand jury system and were thus less than eager to reform it. But there was a growing realization that the level of abuse and corruption was, reflected ba- was reflecting badly on the Irish landowning class as a whole, and was reinforcing the impression that they were irresponsible and inefficient. It was far easier, however, to point out the deficiencies of the grand jury system than to devise solutions.
5: Mm.
4: For some, the obvious solution was for central government to take a much more active role in local administration. But this went, went against British political traditions, which had always been based on a strong distrust of centralized government. The idea was that you should allow local areas to look after their own interests. As Robert Peel warned the Irish secretary in 1828, to take local administration into the hands of central government in Ireland would be to widen the distinction between England and Ireland and postpone the period at which Irish local affairs can be satisfactorily managed by local authorities. But if power was to remain in the localities, was there any practical alternative to the grand jury as the chief administrative body? The obvious alternative, of course, was the introduction of some form of local democracy. The most frequently suggested form being elected county boards. And these were being suggested right from the sort of beginning of the 19th century. But this was a reform too far for British ministers, at least until the end of the 19th century. And this is hardly surprising, perhaps, given that, even in England, county administration remained in the hands of unelected magistrates until 1888. Having rejected the idea of radical reform, ministers had a number of options. They could go down the road of centralisation, they could attempt to prevent abuses and limit the opportunities for corruption, or they could establish new institutions to take responsibility for local administration. In the event they explored all of these options, central government increasingly took over the supervision, if not the administration of local services. Policing and education, for example, were directed from Dublin Castle. At the same time, a series of reforms was introduced in the early decades of the 19th century to provide for a more satisfactory scrutiny of and accounting for grand jury expenditure. In 1833, for example, an act was passed which allowed a small number of cesspayers, sort of local taxpayers, chosen by the grand jury to examine presentments prior to their consideration by the grand jurors. It also required all presentments passed by the grand jury to be executed by contracts made on sealed tenders and overseen by qualified surveyors appointed by the government. Perhaps more importantly, however, the grand jury was increasingly eclipsed as an organ of local administration by the Poor Law Board. The Poor Law, introduced in 1836, provided an alternative administrative structure to that of the Grand Jury, and one which was more representative of ratepayer interests, while still providing a major role for local landowners. There was less overt criticism of the Grand Jury in the second half of the 19th century, but the system was tolerated rather than embraced by Irish people mainly because it was so firmly associated with the landowning class. The fact that local administration as a whole was mainly the preserve of the landed elite was a growing cause of frustration to Irish nationalists. Thus, an editorial in the Palm Light newspaper United Ireland in 1882, declared that the most pressing necessity to local political and social life in Ireland was to abolish its incubus, the existing system of local government. All the local power is held by the landlords and the nominees of the castle, The paper noted. From the castle to the grand jury room, all the boards and bodies are the camps and strongholds of the English garrison. They must be routed before we can breathe freely in Ireland. One result of this frustration was a concerted attempt to take control of those local bodies that had an elected element, such as town and city councils and parlor boards. Once this had been achieved, attitudes to a local administration began to shift. There was still dissatisfaction and distrust, but whereas at the beginning of the 19th century it was the Catholic population that felt shut shut out from and distrustful of local government, now it was the landed elite who increasingly found themselves excluded or outnumbered. When grand juries lost their administrative functions at the end of the 19th century, with the establishment of elected county industry councils, the main impetus behind the reform was less a desire to democratize local government in Ireland and more the need to bring Ireland into step with the rest of the United Kingdom. Discussing proposals to replace Irish grand juries with popularly elected councils in 1892, the Irish chief secretary, Arthur Balfour, candidly admitted that nobody supposes that any new machinery will work any more efficiently than than that which already exists. The main object of establishing the new machinery is to remove any sense of unequal treatment between the three portions of the United Kingdom. While he accepted that grand juries would have to be replaced by county councils, Balfour worried that the election of councillors on a popular franchise as in England would hand power over to people who were very poor, very ignorant, And in all probability very extravagant. Such people, he feared, would be directly by their votes and indirectly through the patronage exercised by their representatives, serve the interest of their political party regardless of the necessities of sound administration. The early years of the new system of elected county and district councils did not bring about the chaos predicted by unionists but many remain convinced that the new county councils would operate according to a well-established tradition. An article in the Monthly Review in in 1902 noted that since the 18th century, Irish representative councils have shown themselves rather political debating societies than business-like assemblies, and neither the reformed corporations nor the newly created councils, whether county or district, have proved any exception to the rule. Everywhere over at least three fourths of Ireland, we find them turning from the administrative work for which they were called into being to indulge in political declamation, while the rates are everywhere rising and the roads deteriorating. Such remarks demonstrate the extent to which Irish local government was still seen to be working in the interests of a particular class or group rather than in the interest of the community as a whole. The point I want to stress here is that this perception derived less from the merits or otherwise of the system than from the extent to which people felt their interests were not being protected or were being protected. Thus at the beginning of the 19th century, critics of the grand jury system attacked its domination by the Protestant landlord class claiming that it was operated by landlords for landlords. And similar accusations were made against poor law boards in the early decades of the poor law system. But with the growth in tenant dominated poor law boards, the nature of complaints began to change. It was now landlord interests that were being ignored and tenants who were exploiting the system to their own advantage. And we can see the same criticisms being made of local councils after 1898. Control of local administration could never be seen as a non-political issue, which was always rather the hope that, you know, local politics didn't have to be affected by national political uh, party political concerns, it would sort of be sort of more non-political. And British ministers really sort of uh, tried, sort of their aspiration was to get to that point, but I would argue that was, as I say, that's always unrealistic. The idea that local government represented a potential area of cooperation between different classes and religions um, simply wasn't going to work in Ireland where there was a a sort of central lack of trust between central government and the people. Crucially as well, I think there was a lack of agreement about what constituted good government in a local setting. The highly politicized atmosphere in which local government operated throughout the 19th century Made the establishment of any such agree- agreement impossible. There were too many competing demands and expectations. Ministers and their officials looked for efficiency and economy, with efficiency being judged more by adherence to statutory regulations than the effective delivery of local services. Ratepayers wanted low rates and services relevant to their needs, while at the same time, those with personal or political links to local representatives expected to be remembered in the awarding of jobs and contracts. Landowners demanded direct representation on local bodies to ensure the protection of their interests, while popular politicians sought a public platform to which to publicize their views and policies and a means of consolidating local support. Clearly not all of these demands and expectations could be met, and the resulting disappointment and resentment contributed to the negative light in which local government was seen by many Irish people. Constitutional nationalists from from Daniel O'Connell to John Redmond, sought to convince the British that Ireland deserved to be treated as the other constituent parts of the United Kingdom and that the Irish people could be trusted to adhere to British administrative standards and practices calling for the reform of Irish municipal corporations in 1835. O'Connell argued that the only means of preserving the connection between Britain and Ireland was by allowing the Irish people to share the advantages of British institutions. A significant body of Irish nationalists, however, came to reject British values and institutions along with British rule. Cultural nationalism aimed to create an Irish identity though owed nothing to Britain or to British culture. An independent government, it was hoped, would sweep away the administrative remnants of British rule and establish authentically Irish institutions at both national and local level. The intention announced in the democratic programme of the first Oil to abolish the odious, degrading and foreign poor law system, substituting therefore a sympathetic native scheme, was very much in keeping with this anti- British sentiment. Boards of guardians were finally abolished in 1925, being replaced by county boards of health and public assistance. In other respects, however, the structures of local government in Ireland remain largely unchanged, though many of its functions were gradually transferred either directly to central government or to appointed bodies. Indeed, local authorities tended to be regarded with as much suspicion and disfavour by Irish government ministers as they had by their British predecessors. Tim Healy recalled being told by a free state minister in 1926, that county councils represented the Magna Carta of jobbery. Such comments are evidence of the extent to which Irish political attitudes, as well as administrative structures, continued and arguably continue to be shaped by the legacy of and divisions created by British rule. Thank
3: you. Thank you very much, Virginia. Uh, Wonderful um, overview of the grand jury system and the impulses behind its reform uh, in 1898, which of course takes us to where Tim Carey began uh, with the 1921 destruction of the custom house and the uh, the local government records. I'll go straight, if I may, to our next segment, uh, where um, I'm. Delighted to welcome to my colleagues in the Beyond 2022 project, um, Brian Gurren and David Brown. Uh, Congratulations to both Brian and David today, because uh, we are publishing, in collaboration with local government archivists and record managers, a beautiful booklet, um, which is free. You can find it on our website. We'll put a link into the chat during Brian's talk, Um, documenting the the system and its records and really revealing the... um, really revealing the uh, richness of the records. Um, So, uh, I'll hand across to Brian first, and then Brian will hand to Dave, uh, and then we will come back to me. So over to you, Brian.
6: Uh, Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, I'm just going to share a screen now. I have a a few present, our PowerPoint. That's great. Is that sharing? That is. Great. Okay, thank you, Peter. Now, I was first drawn to grand jury records through my interest in the census. Now you may know that Ireland's first census was authorized to be taken by parliament uh, to commence in May 1813, with the enumerators traveling from house to house, asking the questions and noting the responses. Now you may also know that embarrassingly for William Shaw Mason, the census commissioner, the survey failed to fully enumerate the island and its findings were never published by parliament. Uniquely among Irish censuses, the act specified that the enumeration was to be initiated by the grand juries and the counties at the spring assizes of 1913. I'm not going to go into the details of why the 1813 enumeration failed. Sorry, did I say 1913, 1813. The 1813 enumeration failed, but since there was grand jury involvement in the survey, it seemed reasonable that I might find traces of it in the grand jury records. Now, as I said, the results of the enumeration were never never formally published by Parliament, but abstract returns did subsequently appear in the third volume of Shaw Mason's quite magnificent parochial survey of Ireland. For some counties, substantial information was provided, and for others, only rudimentary data appeared. You can see here for County Longford, for example, that Barony data were provided giving details on housing, Questions one, two, and three. Uh, Employment, question four. Population, question five. And also population data were given for many of the county's urban centers. For many other counties, however, only the merest data, sometimes partial, were provided. And in this example for County Limerick, Limerick, it seems reasonable to conclude that the census was not even taken in the two Western baronies of Connello upper and lower. And if it was taken there, then that those figures have been lost. Now Limerick's grand jury records for this period, however, tell an entirely different story. Fortunately, the county's surviving printed presentment abstracts have been made available in digital format online and they cover this period. So if we examine the four relevant volumes between summer 1813 and spring 1815, the real story can be unfolded. At the summer assizes of 1814, a payment of 192 pounds 19 shillings was approved by the grand jury to recompense Gerald Blennerhassett for his enumeration work in Clonello Law. And at the next assizes in 1815, spring 1815, 234 pounds 15 shillings was approved for Edward Lloyd's work in Upper Canelo. And since both presentments note that the rate of pay was at five pounds for every 1000 people counted, or a shilling for every 10 people counted, it's a trivial matter then to calculate the population figures that were reported for both baronies. So on this map we can see that the figures that Shaw Mason published were only for the Eastern uh, baronies in Limerick, but since we know that a shilling was earned for every 10 people counted, and that is a really, really high rate of pay, it stands to reason then that lower Clonello's population must have been reported by Blenner-Hassett at 38,590 plus or minus 10 people, and upper Clonello's was at 46,950 people plus or minus 10, and the entire county's population was counted at 189,405, plus or minus 20 people. Now those figures, since they weren't published by Parliament, and since they weren't published in Shaw Mason's publication, they have not seen the light of day since 1815, more than a century before the Custom House was burned, and they simply could not have been recovered without employing grand jury sources. And it's these two specific presentments in Limerick's presentment volumes that allowed them to be revealed. Now, that's just a very simple example of what grand jury records can uniquely tell us about the forgotten past. It's true to say that the grand jury had an unenviably poor public reputation in 19th century Ireland. Allegations of corruption were commonly heard and even appeared in print. Ely Dutton, author of Statistical Surveys for the Dublin Society, will surely have tested the limits of libel law with his bruising comments about the grand jury in one western county. He informs, A few public-spirited and honest grand jurors have attempted to stem this torrent of peculation, but the consequence has been that they have been threatened with an opposition to everything they proposed, and the disgraceful expedient was resorted to of polling everything they asked for. One gentleman returned the overplus of a presentment. He was laughed at by his brother jurors. Such is the morality of the county. Very hard hitting indeed. Perhaps he felt safe enough, though, in the libel stakes because he did note that the gentlemen of the county are not much in the habit of reading. Dutton was not alone. Other writers were equally, if not more so, scathing. But in spite of these criticisms, likely justified many of them were, it must be said, the records that have remained from the days that the grand jury had civic duties, and as Virginia said, those days ended in 1899, the records of the grand jury, often ignored in favor of more popular sources, such as British parliamentary papers, newspapers, poor law records, parish registers, civil registration and the like, they can open up unique and very clear vistas on aspects of the past. So what might we be able to do with these records in our research? And it is very important to note that although some counties are far better endowed with surviving grand jury material than others, there are surviving sources from the grand juries for all areas and all counties on the island. The most commonly used of the grand jury records are the presentment books. For some areas, the original manuscript books have survived, although most of these were released into the public record office after 1867 and were destroyed. Two manuscript volumes survived for County Longford, covering the period 1759 to 1907. One manuscript volume is available for County Wexford, spanning the years 1817 to 1823. And this volume has recently been digitized and with impeccable timing, it has to be said, was published online by the county's archives just last week. Also online is the entire collection of Donegal grand jury presentments in Donegal County archives, which includes a manuscript volume commencing as early as 1753. Manuscript volumes survive for other locations too, including for County Clare, and for all 10 Ulster counties, including the county of the town of Carrickfergus, such as this one here for Carrickfergus. Me, this particularly well covered because most of its records had been retained locally in Trim Court House instead of being dispatched to the PRO. However, even if manuscript books have not survived, printed abstracts were published annually by the counties from the latter part of the 18th century And some of these have survived for all areas. County Wicklow, Limerick, Louth, Wexford, and Donegal. They've made their collections available online either in part or in their entirety. Presentment books can be a very useful source for historical research. And fundamentally, basically they're records of planned expenditure by the county. They follow a fairly fixed format so you can get a handle on them very quickly. All counties had county officers, the county establishment, that included treasurer, the treasurer, secretaries, jailer, jail chaplains, constables, Irish interpreters, and so on. And these had to be paid out of the county cess or the county tax. This listing of presentments for County Downs Assizes, 1813. This is particularly useful because the statutes, the statutes underpinning the payments are all listed. All counties assess money for improving existing roads, building new roads, repairing bridges, and undertaking other substantial capital investments, including repairing breaches and water defences, raising hollows, lowering hills, building drains, and so on. I find that presentments regarding road repairs can be particularly ilu- illuminating. They give details on people living in areas and recorded micro place names now often lost. Joanna Dooley, for instance, lived between Cashel and Care in 1817. We may never be able to pinpoint exactly where she lived, but I doubt that many other sources could even tell us that much. There was a place called Giant's Grave on the Rat Drum to Dublin Road in the middle of County Wicklow, and mileposts were erected, were erected along that road. Who knew that? They can also tell us quite a lot about women and pastimes. Although women could not serve on grand juries, grand juries were all male. We see them appearing in presentment books, albeit less frequently than men's names may appear. Inevitably, they appear in stereotypical roles, including as cleaners and foster parents for founding children. But they're often mentioned if their property marked the beginning or end of a roadworks task, and in a surprisingly wide variety of employments, and sometimes as contractors. In fact, women appear more regularly in grand jury presentment records than in many other more widely used sources. So in conclusion, in this brief talk, I'm just trying to give a very quick introduction to records which many may not be overly familiar with. The grand jury records are quite unique sources in that they can get us to the very heart of past communities recording names, locations, occupations, and the land holdings of people at various levels throughout the social hi- hierarchy, and often for extended periods. I'd encourage people to take a dip into grand jury records because you really do never know what they might reveal to you. So thank you very much for listening. I'm now gonna hand over to my colleague, Dr. Dave, David Brown, who's going to talk to you about the magnificent grand jury maps that were produced Uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much for that, Brian. I have a bit of background noise here today. One of my neighbours is cutting his house in half with an angle grinder. That's what it seems to sound like, but that's the joys of working from home. Uh, I think we're running a little bit late, so like the last person in most relays, I'm going to try to do the, the final straight quite quickly. We're going to talk about the Grand Jury maps. They're interesting in two main ways. First and most importantly, they're the most detailed collection of maps produced for Irish counties prior to the Ordnance Survey series that began to appear in the late 1830s. And secondly, they're the first series of Irish maps funded through taxation and not private ventures that were not produced for the purposes of conquest and expropriation. The Grand Jury maps relate a story of settlement and prosperity, they don't relate a story of conquest. These maps Mark a watershed and how Ireland's English conquerors viewed the land that they now controlled. It's settled, it's prosperous, and to a wealthy landowner, at any rate, it's full of opportunity. We're going to have a look, we're going to basically spin back now a few hundred years, and we're going to look at how these maps developed. Um, So what we're looking at here is basically the very beginning, the earliest maps of Ireland were produced for navigation. Now, this map is from one of our Beyond 2022 archival partners, the Huntington Library in California. It's a medieval interpretation of a description of Ireland attributed to the Egyptian mathematician Ptolemy, uh, written in around 150 AD. The maps were constructed from textual descriptions and interpreted by Byzantine monks from around about the 14th century into pictures. And these Latin copies closely followed on. Rivers feature most prominently as in the ancient world, and especially to the Egyptians, rivers were the easiest way to get about. So the maps from the earliest times did what maps are supposed to do, they enabled people to find their way around the world. The printed maps of Ireland for general use began to be produced in the mid 16th century. All of these were commercial undertakings and they appeared first in the Netherlands and Italy and in England by 1600 or so. This is one of the very earliest published by a in Amsterdam in 1572. The images from the L. Brown collection of digitized early printed maps of Ireland and beyond 2022 will be hosting hundreds of maps from this collection on its site next year. These will replace most of the maps that were originally in the national collection and lost in the fire of 1922. Maps produced by the state however had a different emphasis this example from around the same time as Ortelius by Francis Jobson and at the National Archives in the UK is intended to tell military planners which peer or Irish sept controlled each area. So, using this map, the English crown could determine where its friends and enemies were and plan its conquest of Ireland. It's a strategic map and the first of many detailed local military maps that followed. For Irish landowners, conquest was always followed by confiscation. The Elizabethans divided Ireland into counties and baronies, a process called shiring. This plantation map, also from the National Archives in the UK, shows the newly minted barony of Cloher, County Tyrone, and the subdivisions of the old Irish territories, the Ballybetas and the Ballybowes within them. And the Ballybows are the rough equivalent of modern towns.
2: Apologies, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, David. It's just your audio is dipping slightly in and out. So maybe you could just lean forward a little bit and it might just be a bit more consistent if you wouldn't mind. Apologies.
0: So this is the land in 1609, chopped up and divided into parcels to be doled out to army officers and their cronies. And from this distance, it's a beautiful object, but one made for a very specific purpose. And it's difficult to see on Zoom the detail of the map, so this chart conveys the same general idea as Thomas Raven's map of the barony of the and the idea is that the barony is divided up into prime and variety cuts so we can move on another 50 years we have William Petty's down survey of Ireland continuing on in pretty much the same vein the cartography is better but it's basically another map of townlands and this time for the Dingle peninsula and from the manuscripts of the bibliothèque nationality The original maps of these from this series, Down survey, was kept at the custom house for 250 years, but then sent to the Courts where they were destroyed. The Ballybeaches are gone, as Petty would have nothing to do with ancient Irish landholding patterns. Here the main subdivision is the parish, which is a subdivision of a diocese, not a barony, with a townland within it. The map thus strips away another layer of Irish identity and with it any representation of the inhabitants, their roads, their homes and their churches. Looking at the map in some detail, you would be forgiven for thinking that hardly anybody lived there. Perhaps it was through embarrassment over what they had done that the unnamed Severe left us a clue in the cartouche. And this is over on the top right hand side. And here you can see a rich land teeming with fish, but hung out to dry. And they, if you look at series of these, you'll see that the cartographers had a very, very sharp sense of humor. The limitation of only producing maps of confiscated land. Be seen in Petty's map of the barony of Clotter and this one is provided to us by the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, 50 years after the map of Clotter that we looked at a couple of minutes ago. But there's no land left now on the map to dole out, so the townland map has now become rather sparse. But luckily, Petty had his own personal set, and his surveyors had in fact mapped far more than townlands. The townland maps are what they show to the public. Uh, this example from his own personal collection, and it's now in the British Library. It's a map of Abbey Shrule, County Longford. And we'll be making all of these different editions available eventually on beyond 2022, again, hopefully by June of next year. Again, once again, it looks like now we, a standard townland map, but the cartographer has left us a clue in the cartouche. Longford had windmills and actually Longford had lots and lots of windmills and watermills all along the river Inney with castles houses bridges and all the other infrastructure of advanced european settlement you can see this on Petty's private edition but not on the publicly viewable editions these are the ones that were kept in the custom in the record office the general's office before that and so on so when we compare Petty's map at long last to the grand jury map we can see that they, nothing has really has changed by 1812. The river's in kind of the same place, the abbeys in the same place. Uh, that's a bit easier to read. Uh, Petty didn't always orientate his maps to the north. They only standardised on this northern orientation in the mid-18th century. Uh, we think Petty was just trying to save paper because he kind of squished them in at any angle. But the mills are still there, the ruins of the abbey, roads, evidence of lots and lots and lots of people. The intended line of the Royal Canal is clearly shown. This was completed five years later and the produce of those mills was about to be connected to and the London world. At Longford and elsewhere, the Grand Juries were not making maps of conquest. They were making maps of settlement and they had nothing to hide. On the contrary, the Grand Juries had an intense need to show the world what they had achieved. The Grand Jury maps were produced on a Grand Jury scale. Stunning and eye-waterly expensive productions were published, one after the other, as each county was put into its party clothes and paraded around the Salons of London. The maps were all engraved, printed and sold in London, and always by the most prestigious engraver available at the time. The grand jurors were fiercely proud of their counties. They lived, lo- they lived locally and strived to develop their neighbourhoods, far from the absentees and opportunists, who owned much of some counties but took little interest as long as some money kept coming in. Ireland was part of the Union. Larkin's stunning 16-sheet map would go away if this, this is only one sheet, four meters by three meters when joined and even larger than frame, when once it's framed, was produced at the seat of power. This map left the grand jurors' imperial masters and no doubt that their county was at least the equal to any other in the newly united kingdom. In its detail, Larkin's map reveals what Galway had become, with its great houses, its markets, its hundreds of much poorer homes everywhere, its castles, its monuments, and stands of ancient trees. But Thirty years later, this was mostly gone, swept away by the twin catastrophes of famine and emigration. The grand jury maps were swept away also, their pride and individuality replaced by the uniforms and uniformity of the Ordnance Survey and state map making was once again returned exclusively to the military. And now even the paper map is gone. You can still get them, but you have to print them out yourself. Sat Nav will speak at you instead, telling you to turn left on 30 meters, just as Ptolemy's directions guided navigators and allowed the first maps to be visualized seven centuries ago. So this, this has been a fast narration of how we got to the grand Jury map. And I've also tried to give you a feel for how we, beyond 2022, are reconstructing the lost collections from the Public Record Office using replacements at libraries around the world. Normally we invite questions from the audience at this point, but from the looks of this audience, no invitation is necessary. So I'll hand back to Peter now to deal with all of that.
3: Dave, thank you very much indeed uh, for that uh, wonderful visual tour of the. Uh, stunning cartography collections that we can look forward to, and I would encourage you uh, to look at our map collections that are available from today on the website. Absolutely beautiful, incredible detail that you can explore. Uh, Dave's paper brought to mind for me uh, an aphorism by the uh, historian of cartography, Jerry Broughton. He writes, map makers do not just reproduce the world, they also construct it. And that seems to be very true of cartography in an Irish context. I think what we'll do is hold questions to the end of the the whole session when we'll have time. uh, My colleague, Ciarán Wallace, will be in command at that point and will uh, steer us very successfully uh, uh, to any questions that may arise from these papers. Because uh, when we're in the Zoom world, we do need a break. We will start back again very promptly at 15.45, so just over 10 minutes time. During the break, please don't go away, keep your, uh, your connection live, because uh, Beyond 2022 is delighted to be participating in the creative strand of the Decade of Centenaries. And through funding uh, supplied by the Department of Culture, we have uh, been delighted to appoint uh, Mairead McLean as our artist-in-residence who will be working with us uh, in the next 12 months. Uh, Maraid has done extensive work with archives and historical subject matter and we're going to share with you during the break as the Interval Act a piece that Maraid has uh, uh, done called A Lion Was Drawn. It was created in 2018 and 19 and reflects her engagement with archives and historical subject matter. She worked with our core partner, Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, Belfast, in creating this and it explores issues of agency and boundaries and exclusion and voices hidden in the records, very much themes that we're trying to uh, uh, excavate through today's research showcase. So thank you very much. We'll see you again in 10 minutes and uh, enjoy the break. Thank you to the speakers too.
7: So welcome back folks and uh, just to say thanks very much to Mairead McLean for allowing us to show her video there, A Line Was Drawn. It's a pity to have to cut it off before the very end but we want to keep straight on time. On Beyond 2022, we're really pleased to have the uh, artist in Residence Scheme running, the Decade of Centenaries Artist in Residence Scheme running. And I think it's a very imaginative thing for the state to have done, so watch out for Mairead and her other fellow artists in the other cultural institutions over the next 18 to 24 months. We're going to turn now to uh, the archives and record managers group, uh, local government archives and record managers group who've been collaborating with us uh, very closely over the past months preparing for today's event. And we really are very grateful for their advice, input and expertise on all of this. I'm going to hand over now to uh, Neve Brennan. Niamh Brennan is the um, uh, chair of the local government archives and record managers uh, group uh, to say a few words for the second session of today's talk. Thanks Niamh.
8: Thanks, Ciarán. I'm delighted to be here today uh, representing, as you said, the Local Government Archivists and Records Managers Group, and I hope you can all hear me. It's not always known that um, under the 1994 Local Government Act, which was a law that was reinforced in 2001, that local authorities are actually required to preserve um, our county's local archives. And there were few such services um, in Ireland until the late 1990s. uh, But since legislation reinforced its importance in the 1990s, county and city councils began to start, started to actually employ archivists and local archive services developed well into the 2000s. So um, our group has been in existence now for 20 years. And at present, we represent about 18 local authorities. Thankfully, we're still expanding uh, with each year as more and more uh, councils employ professional archivists and come to appreciate the importance of of providing archives and records management services. Our group um, is honored to be partners um, in this wonderful project and in this event today. It gives us an an opportunity to showcase some of the extraordinary and unique 18th and 19th century archives of the grand juries that we preserve. So much of the raw material of our nation's history has not survived, as we know from the commemoration of today, the custom house burning. But this strengthens the national significance of the surviving archives, such as these records that we're talking about today and the Poor Law Union archives. So the archives of Ireland's grand juries um, in most local authorities are the oldest surviving public records. Held. These are records which enable historians to discover aspects of social, economic and p- political life at the most local of levels in almost every corner of the county. jury collections um, have generally been accessible for research at local archive services for many years now. And some are also available in local libraries, I should mention, and as well as in other institutions. And a growing number of collections are available to view on our websites, as um, other people have mentioned here today already. And we've also, we, we, we as archivists have always known the quality and the value of these archives for historical research. We've been aware that while they are held in local archives, they're of national significance. And we spent many years preserving, collecting, cataloguing, and promoting these unique collections and providing access to the public. But with this partnership, it is planned that our digitized Grandry collections will be centralized in Beyond 2022's digital repository. This will make them searchable and accessible to all. This is a milestone for us placing local archives on a national stage in a way we haven't seen before. So therefore we're particularly proud to have the opportunity to show off some of the many different Grand Jury collections to you today. The three videos you'll see today will give you a flavor of the rich and varied Grand Jury material held in local authority archives across Ireland. So from Donegal, you'll see um, unfurled an 1801 grand jury map from a William McCrae survey, outlining tenants and landlords' names. we will also see 19th century minutes from Donegal, which give an insight into the workings of and the mindset of the Donegal grand jury during the Great Famine. And um, we'll also see letters from grand jury members to the new county council members in 1899, as as administration of the county um, was being handed over very reluctantly by the grand jury, and some of the issues that arose, Uh, including the loss of grand jury property such as linen and silverware, and power, of course. And then uh, Lisa Shorthall will um, showcase some of Offaly Archive's presentments for for the years from 1830 to 78, outlining some of the works that were undertaken, including, as um, we've heard earlier on from Brian, the building of roads and bridges, and also displayed our coroner's inquest report books, which are quite unusual records to have survived, and she'll show some printed lists of eligible jurors. And photographs from the 19th and early 20th century are hard to find and thus it's great that um, from um, Offaly there are photographs of the Assize judges arriving at Tullamore court Courthouse in the 1910s and a photograph of the judge who presided over the last Assize court in 1921. And then Catherine in Wicklow, Catherine Wright will uh, display and talk about collections, including more presentments and including a wide range of services, including accompanying prisoners to jail, deserted children, etc. And some of the payments that they have um, to the town crier and other occupations, which have long since vanished from public life. There are also grand jury payment books, which note how the higher officials were paid by it, um, who were in the employ of the grand jury. And then there are some beautifully designed architectural drawings um, related to the refurbishment of buildings in Whitlam. These are just some samples of some of the many thousands of items in the Grand Jury Archive collections across the country, across the island from uh, Derry to Kerry. As you'll see from the upcoming presentations, these archives have extraordinary um, research significance, not least in terms of local family, political, social and economic history for our country. And beyond 2022's publication, People, Place and Power, will give you an even greater idea of the Grand Jury system and the significance of the records. The accompanying list of archives held in repositories is an interim listing, but that will continue to be updated as more sources are discovered. So lastly, I'd really like to um, extend my thanks to Beyond2022 and especially Peter, Brian and Kieran. and it's been great so far working with you all. And we really do look forward to continuing our collaboration and partnership into the future. So thank you very much. And I now just want to hand you back to Kieran.
7: Thanks very much, Neve, for those kind words and uh, the Mutual Admiration Society here today, but I think we're uh, probably well-deserved. Um, we move straight on to the uh, the first of the videos the that Neve was there, talking about. This is from her own saying, County Archive, Lifford and as so well. so perhaps immediately evident when you open a, a presentment book what use this is to a family historian, but understanding the locality, understanding the social structures, I think can really add colour to any family history that you just, you know, rather than just getting the flat dates of when great-granny was born and died. Um, I going to be joined now by uh, the three archivists that we met on the video clips there, um, but also by uh, their colleagues Martin Morris from Longford County Library and Archives. Uh, Jovan Rothwell, Waterford City and County Archivist, and gronya Doran, the Archivist with the Wexford County Archive. Uh, Neave, Lisa and Catherine will also join us. And just to have a discussion about the, 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 the usefulness of the Grand Jury records and to sort of thrash out some of the, the uh, particular strengths held in particular counties. There are more counties than are present here, but some of the archives that uh, talk about the strengths in some of the archives that we've encountered here today. Um, so perhaps, perhaps if I can turn to Grainne First um in Wexford. Uh, Gwony, is Grane with us? In... Yes, there you are. Okay, gotcha. Thanks, Gwanya. Um uh, just to ask, um you were saying that uh, the the strength of Wexford's own grand jury collections in the light of some of what we've seen today on the videos, do you want to comment on some of your grand jury holdings in Wexford, please?
5: Uh, Yes, thanks, Kieran. And just before I say anything, um, I'd like to echo Neve's sentiments there as well and extend my thanks to uh, the Beyond 2022 team, uh, to Brian, David, Kieran, and Peter in particular. Uh, for the invaluable sources, um, you know, the the document now that will be a centralising source, if you like, for highlighting the importance of this series of records in local archive services in particular. and I suppose none of our collections are finite in any way. I, we've all certain gaps and, you know, considerable gaps. But I'm an archivist and many of my colleagues, like myself, live in hope of acquiring further um, uh, records to supplement our collections. And I suppose in County Wexford's case, up to two years ago, our earliest grand jury holding was uh, a printed Uh, record of a trial of an RIC constable in Newtown Barrie, which is now Ben and he was charged with murder of um, a woman, Mary Mulrooney, at uh, a market day in which uh, a series of a number of cattle were seized for tithe composition rent uh, due to a local Reverend um, McClintock, and that is quite uh, it's, it's an interesting it's a printed um, report and uh, it turns out in the very end that uh, he was uh, acquitted uh, of, of saying uh, there was only one witness uh, who proved to be unreliable in actually uh, pointing to him as, as the person that killed her. but. Um, The mainstay of our collection in Wexford are the printed uh, abstracts of presentments and the schedule of applications. But as I said two years ago, that all changed when we acquired uh, a lovely large manuscript book of presentments covering the period 1817 to 23. And I have to say as well, while local archive services rely almost exclusively on the goodwill of uh, members of the public coming forward and depositing uh, items um, in our collections for future research purposes. Sometimes we have to, um, you know, um, fund such acquisitions yes. as well and this particular volume uh, handwritten volume covering the period 1817 to 23 uh, presented itself at auction and it was a unique item in its own right so um we were thankfully successful uh, in acquiring it and um Just inside the title page is, I suppose you would call it, a who's who of all the major landowners, uh, property owners, landed gentry, um, serving MPs who were the 23 members of the grand jury in uh, the summer assizes in 1817. And just, I suppose, just to give a very quick flavor of the content of it, uh, again, echoing um, uh, Niamh, Um, Lisa and Catherine as well in terms of the content of the uh, presentment books but the number of women and I know Brian touched on it earlier as well and I was very surprised myself and I'm glad that he referred to it because it's very comforting to know that there were so many women and just in in so many aspects as well Uh, also you know providing coals, provisions uh, groceries uh, rent of session houses on land that they had, um, and there was also one um, in the in I think it was eighteen eighteen where Mrs Margaret Jekyll of Feathered in County Wexford was presented as a fit and proper person to be instructed in midwifery and was to be received in the lying in hospital in Dublin uh, for training. And I think there were three other incidences within that manuscript volume of uh, women um, receiving training or being sent to training for Dublin or to Dublin uh, for For midwifery. Um, And I suppose, touching on the uh, corruption element of the grand juries, um, it's sort of implied in an order in 1818 uh, that the secretary of the grand jury and his clerk be ordered to make an affidavit. At the session, uh, that they have not jointly or individually received any fee or reward um, in ensuring presentments. But, but and, no uh, <laughs> yes, very much so. <laughs> um, and uh, and that was and of course then also interesting. You have local government uh, in or sorry the eighteen eighty nine Act and the the county councils coming into effect in eighteen ninety nine. And I suppose as a precursor. Uh, to uh, the compulsory purchase orders as such uh, you have a payment in 1819 uh, of 12 pounds 19 shillings and two pence paid to the widow carton for damages she sustained by the new line of road running through her lands okay. um, which is interesting as yes. well and uh, Somebody that isn't related to me, but there was a at the summer assizes in eighteen nineteen, the um the sum of twenty pounds was ordered to be paid to William Donovan, uh, a sub sheriff, for his expenses in erecting a gallows and executing a man called uh, Solomon Doran of Temple Udigan.
7: I'm sorry if you're troubled.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so that is just now. Obviously, the the printed presentments are searchable and it's wonderful to have those online and um, and as Brian said as well we only very recently digitised and made available online that handwritten book as well Super. there are a number of Allied collections as well but there probably isn't time now to talk about them today as such but
7: but, but to know that that they're there and are searchable online are readable online but this is even what you just touched on there briefly the stories that can come out of the grand jury records they really repay a little bit of time just to work through them because because the, the colour, the, the, the color sometimes very negative colour, that comes out I think is really uh, super. It's fascinating what you're saying that your collections were able to move into an earlier period because that's something I know that Martin wanted to refer to was that uh, Martin Morris in, in Longford, that um, there's often a difficulty in doing local history before a certain point in the 19th century. And I think Martin, if I can just turn to you, you had uh, uh, some thoughts on the grand jury records and the earlier period for local mm. history research.
9: Yeah, thank, thank you, Ciarán. Yeah, I, I suppose if we think in terms of the the, the sources that are available for local history in the different centuries, Um, and I'm sure there are some local historians tuning in today, the the 18th century is a particularly difficult period to research, and likewise the early 19th century, Mm -hmm. because it's only as the 19th century progresses that you have uh, parish records and the valuation books and the Ordnance Survey maps, and uh, the the, the detail and the, the variety of material grows as the century progresses. But the grand jury material can I think to a certain extent, substitute for the, the lack or the loss of earlier collections, such as those that were in the Public Record Office of Ireland, those that were in the Custom House. And now, I suppose some of the points that I've been thinking about have been made by previous speakers. Uh, but if, if they think in terms of people and place, um, mm. in addition to the landlords who are obviously prominent because they were the grand jurors. Uh, You also have, for example, the overseers of the works, they're named, the the contractors are named, and in in one particular instance recently, um, I was helping a researcher here in Longford with uh, some family research, and it transpires that her, um, some of her ancestors were actually um, road contractors, and the name and the town land of her great grandfather and his brother are mentioned in some of our mid-19th century printed presentments. And that's wonderful because, again, if you think about filling out the family history, and as you said yourself, it's not only about identifying when great-grandfather was born, it's also seeing what he actually did in life. And the fact that he was part of that system and that he put presentments forward and that he was given X amount of money for repairing a a road in the Barony of Moidoo or in the Barony of Shrew, that adds, uh, I suppose, color and detail that's really, really important.
7: Absolutely, and I think as as you mentioned, I think in a previous conversation we'd had about the 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 less if the grand jury or the elite, the the opposite end of the political spectrum can come up sometimes in some of the legal records. I think who's actually taking cases, who's being charged in court, and those sort of things, or who's getting into the very beginning of the legal the legal structure.
9: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and I suppose again just to illustrate a point from our own eighteenth century material here, where sometimes you can get more than one side of the story. Um, There's a village in the south of Longford called Legan. Now, I suppose I have to confess an interest because it's my own local area, but in looking at our first grand jury book, which Brian referred to earlier on, uh, there is reference to the building of the bridge of Legan in 1768, that, that the specifications of the bridge are given and some nice detail on the structure. And at the same session, further along, there was a presentment made to the widow Farrell Whose, uh, from whose property the stone had come for the building of the bridge. Okay. And again, you you, you get a, a little more detail, a little vignette yeah, there, yeah. that this woman lived close to the bridge. There was obviously a quarry on her land, uh, and the quarry was used to, to, to extract the stone for the, the building of this structure, which is still in existence, and probably largely um, the same structure but probably some modifications yeah. since the 1760s.
7: I know it's sparkable, it's isn't it? Yeah, the, the, the tangible evidence of the streets and buildings and roads around us, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if you're talking about the, the very earliest period of the 18th century and going backwards, I know Joanne had some comments, Joanne, in, in Waterford about the end of the grand jury system as we move into the 20th century and some sort of change in continuity. There was some apparent change, but some things didn't change so much, Joanne, I think you had something to say on that.
2: I was just uh, pointing out that one of the administrative decisions that was made in relation to the 1898 Local Government Act was the requirement that they have appointees from the previous grand jury, um, sort of suggesting maybe a little bit snottily that sort of these newly elected, popularly elected um, county councillors wouldn't know how to run things and that they needed some appointees from the previous grand jury system, the elite who knew how things ran and sort of could show them how it would work. And um, so in, in Waterford, three of the grand jury members were appointed to the new county council. There was R.J. Usher, um, Sir William Philip Paul and um, a, a Bonaparte Wise. These are all big to the state mm. names in Watford and in fact the Paul name comes up again because Watford also inherited the secretary of the grand jury that again was okay, a decision yeah. that was taken nationally so in um, all cases where there was an existing grand jury secretary um, who wasn't changing, they would remain in situ for the new County Council. Again, to sort of show these people how it was done and make sure that they kind of followed the the proper um, procedures. Um, But it's it's so it's a kind of an interesting suggestion. Um, One of the things that came up in our records here is the um, Orgy Paul, who was the grand jury secretary and became the first secretary of the County Council. He died in 1918. And um, the council actually delayed a month or two before passing a vote of sympathy, and it was quite a kind of um, a kind of half-hearted. Well, I, it's very perfunctory vote of sympathy. Um, they just direct that a vote, a vote of sincere sympathy, be conveyed to Mrs. Mrs. Paul, the, la- um, the widow of the late Secretary Mr. Orgy Paul. And if you contrast that with the um, vote of sympathy on the death of his successor, J.H. O'Sullivan, um, it says that the council place on record its appreciation of the late Mr. O'Sullivan and his many excellent qualities and of his ability, zeal and unfailing courtesy at all times during the long period of his office. Now, whether that's a um, a result of the change in sort of cultural attitudes between 1918 and um, 1945 or it's a, a holdover from the inhe- the fact that they've inherited orgy pole um, from the previous system and that perhaps things were a little bit formal and that there wasn't that sort of sense of um, connection um yeah.
7: so this really l- a legacy appointment yes and um, I, I i've read a lot on um, do a lot of work on local government and i think those um simple things like resolutions of sympathy over a death and a bereavement i think you can read a lot between the lines and those i completely agree with your take on that and um, sorry catherine did you want to jump in on that
10: well in, certainly we found in wicklow that the color of local life really really came through in these records and over the years looking through the different. Um, occupations and roles. I, I think I mentioned the town choir and we've other references yeah. to repairs of different buildings and uh, supplies like straw for the prisoners, those kinds of things, candles. It just gives a real sense of what life was like then. And really, even from the, the, the family historians' point of view, um, they place an ancestor often at a time when records were very, very patchy. Yeah. So if you had a Church of Ireland ancestor and the register didn't survive and they happened to be a land owner or tenant where work was carried out, all of a sudden there they are in records where you might not get them. And equally, if you're fortunate enough that your ancestor was an official, you can really build up a really colourful picture of that person, not only from the grand jury, but if you combine it with maybe newspaper reports at the time absolutely yes and he may have been involved with the poor law union as well so you're getting this really textured build-up and profile of an ancestor where he may have just had births deaths and
7: marriages
2: you know so yeah
7: and that interlinks yeah, this yeah absolutely no, i think so i think john did you want to come back in on that john
2: so I was just going to say the other thing, as was pointed out by a few of our, our speakers, is that in, it's often in very small little resolutions or very small little points within the grand jury presentment books that you get a huge picture of what life was like. Um, in one of our presentments, there's just um, a point made that the, um, that the, uh, the courthouse keeper um, can actually sell um, beer. For when the assizes are on, and then at the follow-up meeting in the next month, we're told just beer, not kids. So we kind of get a sense that the assizes day is actually a big day out, and there's, um, you know, there's great community spirit, shall we say, to be had at that event, so it's kind of really interesting within the, both in terms of the sort of the, even though that's a sentence or two, it gives you a real picture and flavour of what life was like in Waterford at that point in time, but also the other thing that's really significant in the records is sometimes the sequence So that um, you can often build up a picture of what happened, not because you've one small um, reference in one presentment, but because you have the next year and the next year and the next year. And so this kind of gives you a much fuller picture of what was happening. And so sometimes it can be for a researcher, it can be an absolute goldmine provided that you put in the sort of the time. um, It really does reward that time and effort when you put it in.
7: I think they don't they don't give themselves up easily I don't think and um, so there's a couple of people who want to jump in there Martin did you want to jump in on that yeah just briefly
9: in relation to the to the 18th century of course it was the, the period of the penal laws and of course and yeah. um, in our earliest or our earlier manuscript book here there are references to four priests who would have conformed to the church of Ireland and who received annuities uh, the, the, there were laws that were passed through the century that provided increasingly large sums of money to Catholic priests who uh, became Church of Ireland, and the payments were made through the grand jury. And in certainly in, in two if not three of the instances, I think there were four altogether, the, the only contemporary reference other than in the conformity roles to those uh, priests receiving payments like those are in the grand jury books. <laughs> And yeah. again, just another, I suppose, issue that's related is the, the the diocesan school here in Longford Town Um payments for the maintenance and the upkeep of it. And the repair of it would have been um, approved by the grand jury also, and that was, of course, the Church of Ireland school. But it's important because it was an institution and a significant institution of its time in the town.
7: Locally, absolutely, and I think it's interesting what you just mentioned there about the the uh, uh, clergy conforming. Um, I think there were central lists of those kept in the public record office. They, I presume, were gathered from the grand juries and kept as a central list, and we can see yes. the listing for those in the four courts, yes. and it's burnt. But yet the ingredients that created them are available mm-hmm. in some counties, so that's an exact example of what beyond 2022 is doing and trying to track down these copies or duplicates at the time So, um, so you want to jump in on that
5: oh thanks Kira. no I just wanted to make the point that uh following on from Catherine's um comments there as well about family history potential uh but also um in the county infrastructure in the absence of other records you know in the in the various progression developments in uh, infrastructure, such as the building or rebuilding or reconstruction of bridges, piers, roads, and also all the public buildings as well. And certainly in County Wexford, we have very few records going back Mm -hmm. that far for those. Uh, And in a way it's a pointer as well to the secondary sources of our newspaper collection in the county, you know, which can really flesh out then. You have a couple of lines of, you know, Wexford free bridge and or say New Ross um, Bridge, which Absolutely. would sort of, um, sort of stagger across Kilkenny, uh, into Kilkenny and Wexford as well. And it would be uh, better, you know, sort of documented, if you like, in the newspaper collection of the time where they exist, of course, as well.
7: Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that that's a point of using the grand jury as a, a there might only be a small fact in a grand jury or a small uh, presentment repeated over a couple of years, but to link that then to other records, perhaps to land records or perhaps to newspaper records, that sort of thing I think totally does open them up. Um, the uh, I am just curious to know from from any of the, the archivists present do uh, genealogists tend to use them? Do you have people coming to you with genealogical inquiries who would turn to them automatically or do people tend not to know about them and you're bringing them to the public attention do you find? To any of you, uh, Neve, the hand up there. Oh, you're on mute, Mm Neve. You're on mute, yeah, gotcha.
8: Yeah, sorry. I think that uh, my own experience in Donegal is that the grand jury records tend to be utilized quite a lot by academics, and they can be. and I've noticed that people have come from far and wide, you know, from America, from Canada, from um, the UK, and from various parts of Ireland to look at them for academic purposes, um, but not so much for genealogy, except in more recent years. I think that kind of now we're beginning to obviously with this project but even before that once you start to put them up online people begin to realize that they you know that they have um genealogical um interest but I think the main thing that has been a problem with people was that they're hard to to search because they're by barony or whatever and they're you know it's literally as you're kind of saying to them well okay you think your ancestor might have been a contractor but you're not sure well unfortunately you know say three or four years ago they've had to go through if even if they if they knew the barony, they'd have to go through document after document, um, volume after volume to try and find that person. And obviously, there's gaps as well. Then in the collection, even in the nineteenth century ones. Yeah, but yeah, I think this is this. Uh, but what the others have said there just proves that how good they actually are, and, and that they can be a kind of a um, a substitute for the collections that we don't have. You know.
7: Yep, um, I think this is it. I think we're all finding that. Uh, sorry, Catherine, you want to jump I in there? Just, Thanks.
8: Um, uh, as Neve was saying, there they were in the
10: past very difficult to search, but really um because we're able to digitize them and because they're typescript you can simply uh search keywords names place names or a topic if you're interested in research in a a certain aspect and i'm i suppose trying to promote them as research tools even for school children to use for different local projects things like that very much about their own locality but yes uh, uh, traditionally as me was saying they were, they were tough to search, but technology has made all of this so much yeah, easier I, now. I agree. Really?
7: Um- and, and just before I pick up the other two, just pick up the thread of what you're saying there, Catherine. Um, we found in preparing for this, I thought I knew a little bit about the grand jury records, but actually, when you start digging into them, and you're seeing these payments for killing otters, and otters are considered as vermin, and then payments for children being boarded out, and you, it just gives you this this sort of way of doing local history or social history in all sorts of ways. I wouldn't have anticipated. Um, I'll go to Joanne and then to Niamh, if That's okay. Sorry, Joanne first. Yeah, thanks.
2: Thanks, all. I was just going to. Um point out in um, relation to the um, to the grand jury records that um, you were mentioning, you know, if, if a number of the speakers mentioned place, and yes. the, some of the descriptors, they kind of, they point out person's name and the location, and as you said, often that person isn't there anymore, so it's like giving directions saying, um, mm. go past the blue shed, but the yeah. blue shed didn't exist.
7: <laughs> we all know where it was. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but actually, what I have found in terms of local researchers in particular, is that they have been really good, they have actually, because of local knowledge combined with the the record and combined with the, the Grand Jury map and the Ordnance Survey map, people uh, um, have been able to actually pinpoint very precisely the location, Um, combining that sort of um, local oral history, uh, maybe the valuation records that identify who was living there at that point in time or the Tithe Plotments, and the the Grand Jury records combined then with the other maps. So one of the things that, um, one of the great benefits of the sort of the local archive is that we have a number of different interconnecting records, and we also have um you know local historians and local researchers that um when they all combine they can actually be yes. really astonishing in what they can it
7: do. Is. They're more than some of their parts.
2: So, so
7: uh, talk, absolutely. Uh, Neve and then Martin please. And then I got some questions in the audience that I'll come back to. So, Neil first, and then Mark.
8: Yeah, it was just a, um, one one thing I wanted to mention that was more about the kind of um, the cross county issue, if you like, and um, which I I found when I was looking through the minutes um, from eighteen fifteen to eighteen fifty seven. Obviously, that Oma and Tiro- Ome and Strabane and Tyrone and Derry were mentioned an awful lot in terms of roads that were being built from you know one one part of the county of of Donegal up to Derry. Or there was also this. Um, Uh, um, element that came up about the asylum Um, there was a so-called lunatic Asylum that was in Lifford but it was obviously quite full in the 1840s and they wanted to um, extend it so they were hoping to build a kind of a super asylum if you like and they were thinking about building that NOMA and they had to get people from Derry as well as from OMA as well as from Donegal to have, have this discussion with the bishop from of Derry. Uh, but nothing came of it in the end. I think they decided to go ahead and build it in NOMA. Um, and that that would mean that there'd be more space then for um p- for patients in 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 the in Nifert. But it is just interesting to see that because it was it seemed to be such a fluid and natural kind of connection there, yeah. And now you realise, you know, how things have changed in terms of the geography, uh, the political and geogra- geographical yes, yes. elements. So just wanted
7: to the idea of natural hinterlands, I think, around yeah. market towns and so forth. Absolutely, even in, even geographically within valleys and watercourses and things. I think exactly, absolutely, yeah. No, fascinating, um, yeah. An interesting point. Uh, uh, sorry, Martin in, in Longford, Martin Martin. Yeah,
9: just Karen, uh, in in regard to the work that we're doing with yourselves in Beyond Twenty Twenty Two. the the fact that some of our collections have been submitted to the Project for Inclusion on the website, uh, that opens up the the possibility of comparative studies and the interrogation of the material in a way that wouldn't be possible or would be, well, would be possible, but would be difficult because it would involve people going from um, maybe website to website, but also from location to location uh, to actually visit and see the material in in its original state. And you can look at various possibilities for Uh, regional studies, where you put neighboring counties together. Um, I know one example that was mentioned in a previous discussion we had was where you have a landowner who has property in a number of counties, which was very often the case, and you can see their influence on the grand jury in the counties in which they, they own property.
7: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's that's really important. Um, it's the, the the county, in a sense, is. Uh, I mean, we we live with this, but in fact, it's quite a, a false border. In some ways, it's not necessarily how people live their, their actual lives, and it's not a property was owned for sure. Um, sorry, Neve, did you want to come back in? You have your hand up there, or was it okay? Um, I, I just see a question from the audience here. I just want to jump feed this out. If that's okay, sorry. This is from uh, Sean Brin, and Sean is um commenting on on uh, the records that that uh, he's used, and he's saying his concern is that these records are sometimes on micro and not digitized, or even a microfilm. Um, And hopefully these records will be digitized as part of the uh, 2022 project. Just to mention on that, um, in Beyond 2022, uh, we have um, access to Transcribus, which is a a machine learning uh, technology for reading, handwriting, and now there are technological limitations, to all these things. But one of the things it's had some success with is actually converting or transcribing, uh, microfilm records and we've done that with some records from some of the people here they've shown us the microfilm records and we've taken images from them and been able to transcribe those so there is some chance that records that were on microfilm can actually be converted onto a uh, sort of on screen online kind of format but that's work that's actually proceeding at the moment with some with some success and um, one thing I just wanted to ask then of the group in, in general looking at some of the super maps so the L. Brown collection have uh, very kindly donated uh, this set of grand jury maps and they are spectacular and I'd urge the audience to Go and have a look at them. Um, but reading the maps in conjunction with the grand jury records, um, that's something that I know Brian referred to and talked about in his talk, and I've seen him go on Twitter about it as well, Brian Gurren. Um, it's something I'd never actually done before. Is anybody in, in the group of archivists here? And um, that notion of positioning the maps alongside the text, that's something that, that you've done, or that re- researchers in your institutions have done? Uh, Joanne?
2: Yes, we've actually done it in a in a um, in a number of cases. Not so much for um, a kind of historical research purposes, but to answer current questions in relation to public roads. Ah. Um, so it, it, it acts as a really good resource for the local authority in terms of um, whether or not it's public road. So our um, GIS um, system has um, you know, com- done comparisons between the 1818 grand jury map, the um, right. 1963 um, Pu- uh, Ro- uh, county road act and the 1842 ordnance survey map. So between sort of those three records, we've often used them and compared and contrast and then used our manuscript road contract books to answer some queries we have in relation to um, whether there's public rights of way or whether roads are public roads originally and um, so they're actually not just a historical resource, they're also um, uh, continue to function as a a, a valuable record for the local authority in terms of um, the the infrastructure that's there and as Martin said, like a lot of the bridges and other infrastructure are still um, our bridges and our infrastructure (laughs) so any of the um, information that we have from our contract book we have um, utilized that as well when um, you know when our engineers are taking a look at some of the bridges to see the dates that it might originally have been built sometimes there might be um, information in terms of the materials that were used and these Mm -hmm. are all valuable um, resources for the day-to-day work that the local authorities continue to carry out so I suppose that's the wonderful thing about um, our records is that they're not um, they, while they're extremely valuable as historical resources, they're actually also practical records. Yes,
7: engineers infrastructure can use their
2: our... structure that we use day to day.
7: funny, it makes you think, you know, that famous saying, they say, you know, the past is another country, they do things different there. Well, actually, maybe the past is the same county is the important thing here with this. I want to thank you all very much for that. Um, and then just to, to uh, and thank you for all, for all your time, your input here on this today, um, just to turn to the audience and say that um, The records that we have uh, been gathering, you know, with the collaboration of our colleagues in the Local Government Archives and Records Managers group, um, they're being listed. uh, Brian Gurren has made an extensive list, and it's a a growing list, so this is a preliminary listing of all Grand Jury records held in local archives and state archives and other independent archives and libraries uh, just on the island of Ireland. We think there are others overseas which we haven't encountered yet, but that preliminary listing is on our website, and you'll see the link um, that was in the Earlier links for our web pages, uh, so we'd urge you to look at that listing. Um, just to remember that if we're, we're gathering here today on the hundredth anniversary of the destruction of the Custom House and all those records that were lost, the Beyond 2022 project is based on another huge loss: destruction of the Public Record Office of Ireland in, tw- in 1922. So there's a lot of talk about Irish experience of destroyed records through fire and and cataclysm in that way. But of course, Ireland is not alone, and the 20th century is not the only time in history when such attacks on uh, uh, archives have happened so if the if you want to stay with that uh, sort of theme or see Ireland's position in a global context and the longer history of destroyed archives and the recovery from that um I'd urge you to look up uh, burning the books which is a talk being held this evening it's the final talk in the out of the ashes series on the Trinity long room hub so the Trinity long room hub the link had just gone into your um your uh, uh, the link, sorry, so the link is going into the the, the chat box there. And um, so this is Richard Ovenden, who's the uh, body Librarian in the University of Oxford. He's speaking this evening um, at uh, seven pm, and he's talking about his book called "Burning the Books" and the the terrible sad title is burning the books a history of the deliberate destruction of knowledge and he there'll be a response from helen shenton who's the librarian of trinity college dublin and the archivist for the university and i think that'd be a fascinating way of setting ireland's revolutionary era story in a broader international context and in the long history context of that idea of attacks on archives and um, if you want to learn more about the custom house event particularly in 1921 history ireland has just launched a new podcast with liz gillis and john dorney and other historians taking parts you can google that on the history ireland website our free guide to the grand jury records is on the beyond 2022 website so i'd urge you to go to that it's either on the Flickbook, or you can download it and please do pass it on to all your friends one for everyone in the audience and those excellent grand jury maps from the l brown collection are there you can zoom in as tightly as you like on those for many uh, many counties that are included in that list um before I talk, uh, thank our participants today, I do want to thank in particular, uh, Francesca O'Flaherty and Eva King, our colleagues in the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is the Arts and Humanities Research Centre. Um, at this stage, I think Francesca and Eva could run the Eurovision between them and still make it seem like a calm event that they do every day. So we're delighted to have had their technical help. So we really do appreciate that folks. Um, and to all our speakers, both earlier in today and then this afternoon with Joanne, Catherine, Neave Martin, Lisa, and I have a feeling I'm missing someone there on my screen i beg your pardon um uh Gráinne, sorry Gráinne. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh follow us on twitter that's at virtual treasury and uh, remember to make an appointment to visit your local archive make an appointment first we're still only coming out of lockdown but they'd be delighted to see you and to see who knows what you'll discover when you get into the local archive. so thank you all very much for your company and have a good evening hopefully see you later on this evening of the oven talk thanks now thank
9: Thank
5: Thank you. you. The Hub is a community.
1: Manuscript, book, and print cultures stamping provenance towards the history of the the Taimon Library.
5: As
2: well as being
5: heard. The Hub is
2: a space. Contemplating
5: Ireland through the communities created by cultural change. The
2: The Hub is about impact.
1: The hub is for everyone. And the rise of feminist groups.
3: Here's to the next 10 years.